Welcome back to the Nick Finzer Audio Experience. This is episode number 76 of Ask Nick, now repurposed into this audio show. Uh, right here on the podcast, where we're going to be talking to you today about elevator pitches, about Val Trombone. Uh, I'm talking about microtonal music or kind of maybe some more avant-garde stuff. So uh, you don't want to miss this episode. You want to check out uh, all the episodes here, if you can leave us a review, it's super helpful for getting this podcast out to more people. So th- thanks for doing that in advance. And uh, we can't wait to share new episodes with you this year. So uh, subscribe, like, share, all of those things, and we'll catch you in the next one. If you haven't been following along, I've been reposting all of the Christmas in July from last year, which is all kind of uh, jazz trombone basics, uh, jazz music basics, talking about how to play over C7 or talking about how to create a resolution with dominant over dominant chords with uh, bebop scales with diminished scales with altered scales all these kind of fundamental uh, things all of that is being reposted and uh, those videos are all on a playlist if you just search Christmas in July Nick Finzer on YouTube you can find them all but they're also on my Instagram and I've been reposting them uh, not every day, but kind of most days throughout the month. Very exciting is that uh, one of the UNT students uh, this year, Jack Courtright, was the winner of the ITF's JJ Johnson Jazz Competition. So congratulations to Jack on that. And we're just starting to put together some performance dates, potentially uh, some tour dates for the YouTubes in the fall semester. I just started talking with some folks about that. so. Looking forward to getting uh, more happening there. If you want to host a jazz trombone ensemble from UNT, we would love to have that information and try to find a way to get to you, get to your school, to work with your students, all that kind of thing. Uh, our jazz trombone ensemble, the YouTubes. We recorded an album in May, so we're looking at getting that finished up and getting that out to the world. Oh, and next Friday, I have a really big announcement. So next Friday is going to be a really great version of the show. We're going to have a special guest on the stream. So it's going to be really exciting. I can't really say what it is, but it's in regards to Jazz Trombone Day. And uh, so that's going to be happening in the fall again. November the 20th, we'll have our competition. We'll have in-person finals for the competition and uh, a lot of exciting things. So we'll talk about that more next week. But if so if you want to get all the info on the 2021 Jazz Trombone Day, make sure to tune in next Friday, 1 p.m. and we'll talk about it. It says, which song do you think that you've listened to the most in your lifetime? <laughs> which have you played the most? I mean, there's I go on a deep dive in a long time. Like there's times I just listen to things on repeat. Bright Size Life album from Pat Metheny was one that was on repeat a lot. The Elastic Band from Joshua Redman, you know, that was on repeat a lot. But I mean, JJ, uh, JJ in person. I mean, I know that whole record. I've listened to that so many times. And since I use it a lot for teaching too, I think um, I've heard that a lot of times. Like Mysterioso and what is this thing called Love and Laura, all of those things, probably a ton. Did you ever have to develop an elevator pitch for yourself earlier in your career? Uh, yeah, when I, I mean, in terms of pitching venues or pitching uh, for festivals and things like that, having a description and having a, you know something to go off of like for gigs, yes. And so basically you want to establish, in my mind at least, like who are you? Why should they care? A little bit about what it is you're asking and kind of limit it to a kind of a short message so that, like you said, like an elevator pitch, like who are you, what what are you about, and why should they care, you know? So I usually would say, you know, my name is Nick Finzer, I'm a jazz trombonist in New York City, I do X, Y, Z, I'm working on this new project, here's a link to one video of this project, and we're trying to book a concert the week of 
you know, whatever week it might be and kind of leave it there because the longer of the elevator pitch, the least effective. So you want them to know what you're about but not give them too much information that they don't read it or they just delete your email. Getting that first amount of social proof is kind of the hardest thing. That's why you move to a scene, a big city, and try to get that social proof. Uh, working with people and playing gigs and just getting to know people. And so people trust you and they trust your musicianship and they trust what you have to offer. Is transcribing the only way to learn language? No. Uh, you can play transcriptions from a book. That's another way to start to learn language. You can listen. That's the, that's the best way, right? You have to get the sound of the language of jazz in your head, into your internal mind's ear, as it were, you know, like to be really in your, in your head, that concept, you know? You have to have the, the language, you gotta hear what JJ would've played, what Curtis would've played, what Slide would've played. At least that's what I'm trying to do, trying to hear that language, hear what Bud Powell or Bird would've played. At least the rhythmic with the flow, the, the rhythmic ideas, the flow of the ideas, that language, so you could transcribe as much as you want, but if you don't internalize that feeling of the language, it's never gonna happen, you know? So but you can do that, you can listen, you can play transcriptions. You can look at books, you know? There's certain books that have like um, certain tools, you know, but they're just that, they're tools. But they're not gonna show you how to play them. You can get unlimited books, but the books don't show you how to play it. The language is both what, the notes, and how, you know? You're just like, you can speak another foreign language with a terrible accent and nobody will understand what you're saying. It's the same way with jazz, because you could learn all the language in the world, but if you say it with a terrible accent and it doesn't sound like jazz, it's not going to translate. Transcribing is a great way to do it, because then you're learning the language, you're internalizing the language, you're regurgitating the language to match exactly the how of what that person is playing, the how. So what would be your dream Duke Ellington Orchestra if you could choose from anyone who's ever played in his band? Lawrence Brown for sure, Tricky Sam for sure, Tyree Glenn, or, there's, I mean, there's so many cats, but definitely Lawrence Brown and Tricky Sam and Juan Teasold. I mean, that's the classic section, so I guess it would be them. You gotta be, have Cat Anderson in there, you gotta have Johnny Hodges, you gotta have Ben Webster, you gotta have Jimmy Blanton, you know, all the classic guys, Paul Gonzalez. So basically the band as it was. I think, you know, that's how I hear it in my head. I don't, I don't think I would re, redo it, you know? Would it be better to host a free Zoom masterclass if you're trying to establish yourself, or do you think it's better to upload a long video on YouTube for anyone to check out on their own time? Both of those things create different challenges. Uh, and I think the answer is to do both. What I would do is do a free Zoom masterclass where I would record it, not in Zoom, but I would record it like right now. I've got this Instagram going, I've got this camera going, but it also records the file, right? So I would, I would have the stream that goes to Zoom, and then I would have a, a video recording what I'm saying. And then I could create an edited version of that for YouTube. So I try to always do multiple things with a piece of content or with a, an event. I would have the Zoom masterclass, record it, and have it be on the topic that you want to make the YouTube video on. That way you can have both at the same time because the limitations obviously are with Zoom. You are picking a time and the people have to be available at that time. They have to log on and they feel maybe compelled to be, you know, be there. And maybe people are like, I don't want to reserve 6 p.m. on Wednesday to come to DJ's class. But if you keep, you can keep doing it and, and show up at the same time regularly, you know, say every Monday at 5 p.m. there's a trombone hang on Zoom. Here's the link, post it all over social. And then you can go and, and put the edited versions on YouTube. That way new people can find you and then you can have a link to like sign up for your like weekly class or whatever, kind of like this. So, you know, we, I do this every week, we talk about 
what we talk about. You know, we have the live stream. The video gets edited. It gets reposted the next week. People can check out whatever questions they might want to check. Sometimes they'll show up on Friday. Sometimes they'll go check out other materials. Sometimes they'll come to a gig. Sometimes they'll see you at a trombone festival and say, what's up? Um, sometimes they'll want to get a lesson. All those different things happen from just showing up and being present with the community and, and just being around. You know, it's just like being around in a scene like in New York, going to the sessions, going to the clubs, playing gigs. In the wider internet world, you got to show up. You have to be here. You have to post content. You have to have events. You have to um, do live streams. You don't have to do any of them, but, you know, they all help in adding up to your overall web presence. How do you feel about valve trombone? Is it cheating? No, it's not cheating. It's a different instrument. It has a different sound. It's similar register, but then again, the very sax is in a similar register. Just like French horn is in slightly higher tessitura than the tenor trombone, but it's totally a different instrument, different sound. I mean, I love Bob Brookmeyer. There's not that many valve trombonists, you know? Bob Brookmeyer and Juan Teasel come to mind first, obviously. Then there's people now that are more like playing valve uh, valves, but it's like, a, what do you call it? Bass trumpet instead of valve trombone. One, because it's smaller, I think. Like having a, a full-size trombone and a full-size valve trombone is going to take up a lot of space. So for me, I, I feel like that's probably part of why, why that's not a thing. Second, it also has a different sound, again, than the valve trombone. The valve trombone has a little bit of like a nasally kind of sound sometimes. Not for everybody, but for sometimes. It's cool. I mean, my student who graduated, his name's Trenton, he played valve trombone a good amount. He's recorded valve trombone on the new YouTube's album. What standard do you know that you bet most of your friends don't know? It depends who we're talking about, because I have some friends that pretty much know every song. So especially the bass players in New York. They know just about every tune. So it's kind of an impossible question to ask. One, a tune, I, doesn't know, I don't know if it counts as a standard really because of it, but something that I learned recently that I think people don't know that I would want to play. I mean, Conception is one that some people don't know that I like to play. Bud Powell by Chick Corea, people don't really know that, but I like to play. Uh, Matrix I like to play. It's kind of like a blues, but you have to kind of know how to play it, you know? There's some figures and hits and stuff. But I don't think that those, to me, those don't really count as standards. And then about, you know, half the time people know I love to play Billy Strayhorn's Flowers of Love Some Things. I just started playing more recently. I played it last week at the Trombone Festival. Uh, Star-Crossed Lovers, a Duke Ellington tune. Uh, it's going to be on an album coming out this fall. Is bebop melody slash harmony subversive? The more solos I transcribe, I realize Western notation falls short of capturing sound. Yeah, I mean, I agree with both of those statements. I think that they're related, but two separate statements. Yeah. So is bebop melody and harmony subversive? Yes, I think so, because uh, there's a lot to it. And there's a lot of nuance in the way things are phrased. There's a lot of nuance in the way people play those figures. I think there's like certain isms that are like bebop centric. And then there's kind of a more general jazz language that evolved out of it. That includes the hard bop and post bop and uh, neo bop and whatever you want to call it, you know, just like everything from 50, 50 on through now, like all of that stuff is kind of congealed together into like a modern conception of the jazz language. And so for me, that means, you know, bebop, melody and harmony, but also it also means other stuff. Like it also means modern, modern stuff and, and all different standards and all that different kind of thing. How long did it take you to feel confident in saying no to gigs that didn't pay well or just didn't think would benefit your experience. Uh, a long time. Started playing gigs when I was 15 or 16, and just maybe in the last year, I'll say the last three years, I've started saying no to gigs. Um, so it's it's been a long time trying to get used to saying no or uh, or not. And sometimes you say yes 
you know, so a lot of people talk about, you know, the three pillars of a gig, you know, it's like the people, the money, and the music. So sometimes you say yes for the people and the music, you know, two of it for the money and the music, for the money and the people, whatever combination you want to have. At the beginning, I said yes to everything, every crappy gig forever, and I did everything. Anything that came my way, I said yes. Two hours on the train to play for half an hour with uh, a bunch of people on the beach, I did it. I said yes to everything. And it's been difficult to unwind that kind of mental attitude of like having to say yes all the time. That's, that's difficult, man. What's the hardest thing you've ever had to play? Oh, I know. Ken Thompson Sextet. Alan Ferber's on the record, but if you look at this up, Ken Thompson, T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N, Sextet. Uh, he's got one or two records out. We, and this was like two years ago. Must have been fall of 19 that we went to Europe and played a bunch of shows. The hardest music I've ever had to play, hands down. It's like sort of free and sort of jazz and sort of contemporary classical all kind of roped into one. So huge intervals, fast playing, slow playing, precise playing, microtonal playing, all at once. So check that out if you want to hear the hardest stuff I've ever had to play. It's not me on the record though, it's Alan Ferber. If you don't know Alan Ferber, really amazing. Do you play any larger bore horns? And if so, how do you combat the different feels between that and your small bore? I find issues in overblowing the upper register. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, discussion. I've had this discussion a lot. I mean, I was just playing some large bore. I play a medium bore, right? So I play a 525. So for me to go 525, 547, not as big of a jump as like 500 to 547. In college, I was playing a 508 Yamaha, and I was going back and forth my first two years at Eastman. I was going back and forth between a Kona 88H and a Yamaha, and I go back and forth, back and forth. And it's a, just a different sound, you know? It's different airflow. And so for me, I had to not go back and forth because going back and forth was not good, working well for me. I wanted to stick on one uh, horn and get the most out of that horn. So that's what I did. I kind of stuck with a small bore for a while, but then I wasn't digging the sound of small bore as much as I dug, you know, people that are playing a larger equipment. So do I think I want to play 547 exclusively? No, that's why I play a 525 because it's the, sort of the best of both worlds where you get a little bit bigger sound, but still have that kind of flexibility and the ability to kind of really hammer it home if you need to, you know, give it that zip. But that's kind of why I play the, the horn that I do, because it kind of, if you push it a lot, the King, I play a King 3B+, plus. so if you push it a lot, it has that classic kind of King jazz trombone sound, but if you just play it like it's a larger instrument, it also can kind of have that more bigger sound. Yeah, to me, the hardest thing is the slide weight. You know, like the slide weighs a different amount and like it, so I throw it too far or not far enough or it's too slow, it feels, it feels crappy. But Alton was asking about shedding micro, microtonal stuff. I'm interested, but a little shy. I didn't really shed it until I had to do it, you know? And this guy, he had a pretty clear recording of the, of a MIDI track that he had programmed to go as far and as many cents as he wanted. It feels like you're just playing sharp or playing flat, you know, at first. I'm not super deep in that world, so I'm not like a master of the microtonal stuff, but but I have had to do it sometimes. So you gotta get with the recording and just like, you know, find, you know, find D, find E flat, and then you have to find halfway in between D and E flat. I know it just like kind of messes with your whole conception of the chromatic scale. And But for me, the unlock to being able to hear that way was being able to hear notes like in different places in the harmony. And so what I mean is this, like as you play the note F, if it's in the key of F, it sits in a certain place. 
If it's in the key of B flat, it sits in a slightly different place. If it's the key of D flat, the F sits in an entirely different place, the third versus the fifth, if it's the seventh. So in the key of G flat, that F is in a different place again. So I started trying to open myself up to hearing how one note has basically 12 different placements, you know, and so you know, there's 12 keys, every note can fit in every key and has to get in tune, um, you know, all that stuff. So that helped me to start to hear how that microtonal adjustment makes it in tune, but that is what the microtone is. It's like less than a half step. So that, that was helpful for me uh, in doing that. So, you know, a quick, way, a quick way to experience that, if you want to check it out for yourself, is go to my um, Get Ready routine. Just go to Spotify and go play the first track. It says a long tone. It's an F, right? And then it puts it against a bunch of different bass notes and a bunch of different harmony. So you can feel how that F is going to shift around on you. It doesn't just stay in the same place. It wants to be a little flat, a little sharp, compared to the chord that it's happening in or against. So if you want to experience that quickly, you can go over there and do that. I have an F attachment trombone. I wash my trombone once in a while. However, it gets dirty. How do I wash it properly and then reassemble the trigger attachment without messing it up? So that's really um, tricky. I wouldn't take the valve apart. I would clean the rest of it. You can put it in a bath. Excuse me, hot water, dish soap, put it in the bath. You can let it soak. You know, get all that nasty stuff out of there, use a snake. For all that stuff, I take it to a professional because I am not a person that can really take stuff apart and trust myself to put things back together correctly. I would direct you to somebody that's super into instrument repair. Find a great repairman, a woman, where you are, and trust them. Take it apart. So I would not take apart your F attachment. There's a lot that can go wrong. How many ruts would you say you've been in? It's a, They're always kind of quick, you know, until something else comes along. You know, for the last seven, eight months or so, I've been in a bit of a rut, I would say. Uh, not sure what to do next, a little unclear, you know, everything that I had built up in my mind changed, you know, for everybody, obviously. Just a realization of a lot of things, you know, a lot of um, realities that are different than my expectation as a young musician, uh, and it sucks, you know. You know, the best way to put it, you know, is just like coming to grips with the fact that like, I'm 33, I'm not old yet, but I'm also not young. So like, I'm in this middle point where it's like, you're not young, but you're also not a veteran of the scene. You're not the respected like elder type, which of course not. I mean, it's, that's like 20, 30 years down the road, I'm trying to deal with the fact that like, oh, well, I want to play with Art Blakey or somebody like that. But who's doing that? There's not a lot of um, musicians in that spot that they're training the younger generation, you know? So it's, it's an interesting, uh, time and dynamic of like trying to figure out what to do so I would say I've been in a, in a bit of a rut compositionally I've been in a little bit of a rut I keep feeling like I write the same song over and over again but I don't stay in a rut for very long you know my pragmatism pushes me uh, back to it you know and I don't like to sit around doing nothing so some people incorrectly perceive the trombone as a second-class frontline instrument compared to our buttoned counterparts what things do you hear trombones doing that might be perpetuating that historically when you just hear a trombone in general especially maybe at the high school level or whatever, it can be a very displeasing sound. Something that I've heard more times than I care to is like, oh, I didn't know the trombone could sound like that. That's just like nice sounding, I think. You know, I think at one point people knew that that was the sound when Tommy Dorsey and Glenn Miller were leading bands. And, you know, there was all those great sounds of people in the Duke and Count Basie bands. It kind of changed at some point to kind of like a circusy kind of instrument, you know and people just stopped viewing it that way. For, I don't even know how or why it happened other than like 
trombonists were kind of in the front, but I mean, it's sort of know what happened was the recording. If you want to look into it more historically deeper, it all shifted um, after World War II, and during there was a recording ban, and that's what got all the vocalists, jazz vocalists, including people like Frank Sinatra, who was with Tommy Dorsey, into the star the star role. And it kind of the trombone has never come back, you know, since then. But I think there's a misconception that trombone can't execute things cleanly. Uh, and there's a lot of players that I think perpetuate that myth a little bit, you know, in the way that they play, you know, and some people say, well, that's what a trombone should sound like. It should be slidey or it should be whatever. But I think there's an equal number of people that are able to execute basically whatever you want put in front of them. The trombone can be a good foil for like tenor. There's a good thread about this. Michael Deese kind of posted about this uh, on somebody else's thread, but I mean, it's true. I don't know. It's all the people that just, they want to shred like seven saxophone band or like two, two horns, you know, but some people are into trombone and so it just depends, you know, if somebody is putting together their band and realize that they want a different voice that like, so alto and trombone or tenor and trombone or trumpet and trombone is going to give you two different characters. And whether it's like some people just want alto and tenor sax because they want two people that can play really intensely and fast or whatever. I mean, it's true. Trombone can't keep up with like constant eighth notes, sixteenth notes, whatever. So I don't think it's anything in particular that people are doing now. I think it's people not asserting themselves of like, hey, I can be a frontline instrument. I can play whatever you want. We got to keep doing our part. I think the trombonists would have to just kind of play you know, and get out there as, as a leader, you know, and just show, show them what you got because that's how the only way it's going to happen. And we got to hire all those other people and they'll see, oh yeah, maybe I, I need to have trombone in my band. Be indispensable. I think it's the same for people that play like vibes, you know, like people don't think of vibes first and they have to overcome that hurdle and be like, oh, I really want that person to play vibes. What are some skills that you recommend an amateur trombone player develop to get better? Uh, being able to listen deeply and hear the how of how people play and the why, you know, knowing why something sounds good, why you're drawn to it, how it's being played and being able to mimic it as deeply and as specifically as you can. So don't underestimate that and focus on going deep and not wide because you can't know everything. It's just not going to be possible. You can't know every record. You can't know every transcription. You can't know every solo. You can only know what you know and which is going to create a great musician from your experience that sounds like you. Use that. Use the history. But like, just realize at some point you can know, you want to do your homework and know a lot of things, but like you can't know everything. Be specific about what you like, what you want to learn, how you want to play. Now that's the best I can do. Develop that concept so you can hear when you're not living up to the standard of the players that you want to play like. If you want to get better at trombone with the following choices, scales, exercises, songs, listening, transcribing, which is the most important that you spend your time on. Of those, I would spend my time transcribing because you're going to work on technique and you're going to work on your ears and you're going to work on your concept all at the same time. And most likely, if you pick the right things, you're going to be challenging yourself constantly and you're going to be listening, working on your concept. I, know we, we, I keep coming back to it, but it's like you have to have a super strong concept or you're not going to sound good. If you don't have a good sound concept, if you don't have a good articulation concept, if you don't have a good musical concept, there's no way for you to sound good or to be good or to be hireable because you don't have a strong concept of what the trombone is supposed to sound like, how it fits into jazz, and how you are going to take that and make it your own. You know, When was the last time you dealt with some form of performance anxiety? I mean, one that comes to mind straight away was like my Juilliard audition for my master's program that was over 10 years ago now. Whenever I play for my heroes, I kind of get performance anxiety. I used to get a lot of anxiety when I played for fellow trombonists too, like at ITF or at ATW or any of those events, Trombonanza in Argentina. But yeah, I don't anymore. 
I guess because like I like music that has flaws, and so if I expected myself to play perfectly every time, I, I know I can't. <laughs> And I know that I don't even enjoy that. I love the humanity. I love hearing somebody go for it. I love hearing Train like reaching. I love hearing Brecker doing the same thing or like somebody trying something new. And so if I'm always sounding 100% perfect, that means I'm being really safe. And so at a certain point, you just have to be okay with sounding bad. And, and like I always say, like you're always trying to get your worst day to be slightly better. So my worst day, probably is a lot better than some other people's best day only because I've been doing this for longer than them so the performance anxiety kind of goes away when you think about it's just like this this is exactly what it is and it's not going to be anything other than what it is and I've put in the time or I didn't put in the time but I can't change what I've done to prepare for this moment like I can't go back and it doesn't really matter because it's like when you realize that no one thing is like a make or break in your career, it's a culmination of all the opportunities together and building something slowly over the time. It's not about like one day or this happens with artists on the label all the time. And it's really frustrating when they believe in their heart of hearts that it's like this one single or this one album is going to make or break them. It's like we're not in the pop music field. We're not relying on hits. We're trying to build a career over time. And if you're gonna build over time, that means that each thing builds on the last. When something doesn't go quite as viral as they want it to go and they get upset, it's like, well, that means that you gotta make something else that will capture the attention of your audience. Or you need to reach out to a new audience that will like the music that you're giving out, putting out, you know? So I always try to take that 10,000 foot view, look at the long term. And when you do that, like no little setback is gonna make you upset. For example, you know, having performance anxiety about, am I going to play this tune? I, but, you know, when I get around my elders or something, if Steve Teray, one of my teachers, walked in the room, I would get a little nervous. I can't say that I'm, like, not nervous, but most of the time now, it's just kind of like, this is going to be what it is. I can't change, you know. I am who I am. I play how I play right now, today, you know, or tomorrow or whatever. So how do you work on the more florid and fast stuff with multiple articulation? Uh, you practice it with the multiple articulation slow. So if I wanted to go like, I'll say the melody of like uh, Eternal Triangle, right? Because that's kind of fast. But right? So I would say, See how I'm doing the slow, art the fast articulation, but slow? Because that's how you get clean playing fast, is by playing slow what you're trying to play fast with the same thing. Because what most people do is they'll play it slow, but they'll play... They'll switch back to single tone. Well, you got to stick with the double tone when you don't need it. That, if that makes sense. So when you're playing So sometimes I'll play through like my scale exercises, um, like a major scale workout in fourths, fifths, sixths, you know, whatever. See what I'm doing? Right? So I'm not just da 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 da. So you practice it that way. That's how you do it. Do you think younger musicians have issues with professionalism like they've developed musically quicker than older people were able to at their given age but they get too comfy and give bad vibes? 
Uh, yes. I mean, generally, do I think that this happens? Yes. Yeah, you just get too eager if you've got a lot you want to share. So it, it's not everyone, and it's in certain situations. And they're just, I think it's just eager. They're just eager. I was eager too, you know. You want to prove yourself. You want to get out there. You want to show people what you can do, you know. But the most important thing, I think, if you want to be a person that gets called back for gigs and work is to be cool and <laughs> be a nice person. Read the context of the room, you know, and be uh, amiable to whatever's happening. Yeah, and then when you're interacting with older musicians, it's important as an unknown person, I think, if you want to work, if you want to just establish yourself as like a young gun that's going to like do whatever, then that's fine. But if you want to work, then you got to be nice to those older people that control the gigs. Uh, that are contracting and that want to work with you and that you're like inspiring to work with because it's like oh wow you're 16 and you're doing a great job and they want to take you under their wing you know I would want that more than I would want to like prove myself but yeah I mean I think it's definitely true that musicians are developing like faster sooner and I think that's just because of YouTube and being able to look things up and you know great you know more knowledge of the music and more access and all of that so what do you look for in student auditions and interviews for grad school as it happens this year uh, so we will have an opening for our uh, tf position in our studio so what am i looking at for like that position in particular so first off is someone who can play well right so it's somebody i think about somebody who could you know be a finalist in one of these jazz trombone competitions because we want them to represent our studio well. We want them to have a strong knowledge of the music, have a strong knowledge of like what the music sounds like. Like um, if you don't want to play, you know, improvised instrumental jazz music, like studying with me is probably not a good idea, you know, because we're going to work on tunes and language and transcriptions and like pulling out your voice and like finding ways to make you you. And, um, if you don't want to do any of that, then it's not a good idea. So there's, there's the playing piece, right? And then there's the interpersonal piece, like Jack and I have to work together on a bunch of things. And related to that is that at UNT in particular, there's a lot of teaching that goes into the, the person that's the, in that position. And even if you're accepted as a master's student and not uh, as the TF, there's a lot of teaching opportunities that are here. So for example, like DJ is coming back to school. He's a, going to be doing his master's in arranging. He's going to be uh, arranging TF, right? Other ones like like Jack and, and Jackson, Churchill is another student, is doing a lab band, conducting. So you got to also be able to teach. You know, in those interviews, we ask about teaching experience. We ask about how do you feel about running an ensemble? We ask about how are you interested in teaching at all? You know, it's a different experience than what I had and what I wanted. I had always taught, you know, through high school and college until I moved to New York. So when I moved to New York and started at Juilliard, I stopped teaching to focus on school because I didn't want to teach outside of it. And also Juilliard didn't have any TA kind of thing. Like there was no grad students teaching anything, but at a school like UNT, that's part of it, part of that position. So you know, being a great player, being able to represent the studio well, you know, you're going to be out talking about the studio, you're going to be out with the ensembles, with the YouTubes, like leading, conducting, being able to arrange and doing all those things. It's going to be a person that's able to kind of, you know, cover all those bases. Everyone, all the TAs that we've had have done a little bit of writing, a little bit of arranging, a little bit of teaching, a lot of playing, you know, and so um, those are the things that I look for, especially in a grad student, is somebody that wants to play the music that we're talking about here. You know, they don't want to move to LA and be 
a you know film session musician exclusively or they want to be an orchestral musician exclusively like it's not a good fit you know if you don't want to work on improvisation and your artistic voice as a master student then you know studying with me could be maybe you wouldn't like it i don't know so can you talk about jam session cultures as etiquette specifically should you scout out, out before you play and what should you have prepared again it's the same kind of thing like be cool don't vibe people for their tune choice be ready to go play whatever tune it's inevitable that something's going to come up that you don't know just sit down wait till the next tune that you do know go to the session a couple times before you ask to sit in get to know the musicians Get to know the tunes that they play. Just see what they're playing. Just check out the scope out the scene before you just show up and play. And just have a good knowledge of tunes. Know all the ones that you think people might call when you find something. I know a lot of people that keep lists on their phone of tunes that people call that they don't know. Certain people just like to vibe people for not knowing tunes. This is a funny story. One time there was a guy, there was a guy who called me, me and a couple guys that I play with a lot for a gig. And this guy was the leader and he was trying to be hip and call some tunes that he thought we didn't know. And uh, turns out we knew those tunes and he didn't know the tunes. So that happens sometimes. So watch out for people like that. You should have anything prepared, you know? Tunes that you, uh, tunes that you know in your area get called. You know, ask your friends, go hang out at the session, write down the tunes, and just be generally cool. Parker Brothers has tasked you with designing the new jazz trombone themed Monopoly. <laughs> what are the $350 and $400 properties named for? What crime is cited on the card that sends you to jail? So would these be people? I guess, yeah, those would they'd be players. I mean, for me, I guess it would be J.J. Johnson and Curtis Fuller if I had to pick two players to put there. Oh, uh, the, the, the crime would be emptying your spit valve on somebody and getting spit on them. So on the topic of nerves, would you say in your experience you've used nerves to help you as a confidence booster? How has being nervous helped you be more in the moment of the music of what you play? I think they're just kind of there and you just have to kind of push past them really I don't I, I guess one thing I heard somebody say one time that I thought was really poignant is that you know being nervous about something means you care about it you know so if I'm nervous about it I know that it's like something that I care about and just saying like oh I care about this you know that's good to know you know like I want to do a good job so that's how I think about it. if I'm nervous that means like just like I said like you know Ron Carter walked in and I'm playing I want to play well I want to do a good job I want to show you know who I am regardless of what he thinks you know I want to show my best self I don't know if it's really helped me be more in the moment necessarily I think it just it does kind of get in the way so I would rather not be nervous than to be nervous my main weakness is speed in playing notes and agility in moving the slide back and forth I'm good at sound quality what should I do to get very good at speed um, well you might have to um, check out a different slide technique than you might be using right now um, I like to think about, I can't get fully into this right now. You want to think about like all the four pieces of movement, right, in, a, in your arm. So we have the fingers and the wrist, and then we have the elbow, and then we have the shoulder, right? And you want to move the most with your fingers and the least with your shoulders and somewhere in between for the other uh, things here. I use like a throw and a catch motion with my slide. If you look at JJ, if you look at Curtis, I look at so many people, Michael Dees, they all do this kind of throw and catch, right? And so if you're using your whole arm, it might be a little too slow. Uh, so you might want to look, one, at your ability to move the slide, because that's going to be how you can actually uh, move more quickly. Uh, so I would work on music that helps you attack that. So one thing that requires a good amount of agility would be to open up the Arbenz book to characteristic study number one uh, and play that up to the key change, just the B flat major part, and memorize it. 
and it, it focuses on going through the register. It's a lot of quick notes. It's a lot of fast slide motion. So that's what I would do. If you want to dig into it more, we might we probably have to have a lesson. I, I can't really describe it all super clearly right at this very moment. I got to run. Thanks all for hanging today. And like I said, we're going to have a special guest on next week, which is going to be super fun. We're going to talk a little bit about Jazz Trombone Day 2021, which is going to be super fun and awesome. And everybody should come. It'll be in person at UNT if you're able to get to Texas. Uh, but I'll talk more about that uh, next week. Hope everybody has a great weekend. Again, if you're in uh, Massachusetts this weekend, I'm playing tomorrow in Rockport with Alexa Tarantino. So that should be a fun, a fun one if you're in the area. All right. Have a great weekend, and I'll catch you all next time.